Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Speaking of chaos, uh, I walked into the house the other day. My wife actually nannies children from our home. Uh, so there's all kinds of little miscreants running around all the time in, my, in the place where I sleep and try and rest. <clears throat> so I walked in the other day. She has like four kids that she nannies. One is like jumping on the couch. Another one is like actively drawing on the wall. One is like going WWE on a stuffed animal, you know, just like totally pile driving it right there. One of them is just sitting right there staring at me. And honestly, that's more disturbing somehow. Another one is swinging from our chandelier. One of them is literally performing open heart surgery right in front of me in my bedroom. One is lending out subprime mortgages and then buying those mortgages back up at securities and or discounted rates, the, you know, the thing that got us into the 2008 financial crisis, right? Like this is the type of chaos that I walk back into the house every time. You guys didn't like my financial crisis joke. Anyway, uh, that's all right. You don't have to. Anyway, I look at Sarah in the midst of all of this, right? And I, as madness to me, to her, it's her job and her life and she likes children. So it's fine. To me, it is insanity, right? And I look at her and she just looks at me and says, everything's fine. Everything's under control. Now, that's clearly not true, so I go in and I make my sandwich, and then I go hide in the garage for the rest of the day, right? So uh, this is kind of how the world feels to me right now a little bit, right? Like, we're kind of all trying to tell each other and tell ourselves that everything's under, in, under control, and we're not even talking just the regular, you know, the coronavirus and rampant injustice, wildfires, hurricanes, like all of that, like, right now kind of stuff, but even just in, like, normal everyday life, does it not feel like the world is spinning a little wildly out of control, like, on its own axis, right? Like, normal stuff. So this is, this is pre-coronavirus, if you can even remember those days, right? When everything seems perfect, now we look back and we're like, oh, that was so great. No, even in normal times, right, you've got, like, crazy income inequality, you've got sex trafficking, you've got domestic abuse, you've got earthquakes and malaria and on and on and on and on and on, right? This is just the world that we live in. I know. Really encouraging note to start out on. Then in our text today, the author of Hebrews has the audacity to say of Jesus, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. This presents, or it should present, a little bit of cognitive dissonance in you, which is where your brain is sort of trying to believe two things that can't possibly be true at the same time, right? Because you look around at the world and it does not appear to be under control. It does not appear that everything is under subjection to Jesus. And I hate it when people are kind of dismissive and they kind of are just like, well, you know, God is in control, right? Because when you're looking at an actual situation, especially a particularly hard situation, and you hear that kind of language, it's one of two things. It's either feels, and you know, we can discuss later the sort of reality of it, but it feels either dismissively naive of the situation, right? Where you're like, maybe you don't fully understand this is not good, or... It seems like if God is in control and this is how he's running the world, then I'm not sure that this is a good thing. I'm not sure that this is even a God that I want to follow, right? Like if this is what control looks like, then I am not sure this is what I want. But there has to be some truth to it, right? I mean, our whole view of like God, as followers of Jesus, our whole view of God and scripture and all of that depends on him actually being in control, 
So this is not just some sort of philosophical abstraction for you. This is not just like, well, you know, I wonder what that actually looks like. This is something that cuts to the heart of everything that we think, everything that we do, everything that we say, the way in which we look at the world. And I'll take it a step further, and I'll just say that I imagine, and I don't know all of you all that well, but I'll imagine there's some element of chaos in your life right now. There's some element of your life right now that if you looked at it, you would say, I'm not sure if I really believe that God is in control of that situation. So let's see what our mystery author of Hebrews has to say about that. First in verse five, he says, for it was not to the angels, back to the angels with this guy. I tell you what, I knew we were going into Hebrews and I promise I read it before, but this angel stuff just keeps catching me, man. He's all about it, right? For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It was testified somewhere. And I'll pause there for just a second. So he's totally hung up on the angels and he's saying basically uh, that the world to come, the future world, the world that God is building, the angels are not going to be the ones that are in charge of it. And for him, this is very important. Remember, he has an even higher view of angels than probably you and I do. And for him, angels are sort of God's delivery, their messengers. And you know, this is well represented throughout scripture. I'm not saying that this is like, he has a different view, but I am saying that, you know, for us, angels are something that are kind of funny, right? They popped up on touched by an angel. They popped up on, it's a one wonderful life, that kind of stuff. They glow a lot. They have wings. They're kind of silly. They're in like half of the far side cartoons, right? So uh, for him, this is not what he's saying. He's saying it's a big deal that the angels are not going to be in charge later. And then he goes on, he says, it's been testified somewhere. And what he's referring to there is Psalm 8. Okay. So in Psalm 8 verses uh, 6 through 8 is sort of what he's or, uh, he's quoting parts of Psalm 8. He, here he says in 6 through 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is a spectacularly beautiful Psalm that the author of Hebrews quotes right here. It's actually written by David and he starts off by saying that God is in control and his glory and his power and his control permeates everything on the earth and that we exist because of and through him. And then he transitions to humanity. So look at the scale of that. He starts off by saying like, God is huge. He's amazing. He's in control of everything. He is glorious. He's in command. He's in control. And then he makes this very subtle switch and he says, what is it? What is man? What is humanity that you are mindful of them? What is it that you would think about us is essentially what he's saying. And if you think about that, God does have a really strange relationship with humanity, right? It's kind of odd if you really sit down and think about it. Why does he care about us so much? Why did he put us in charge of his world? He didn't have to. He could have remained completely in control. He could have made us just like middle managers or sort of like robots who don't really have thoughts and feelings. But instead, he gave us all of this freedom, all of this free will, all of this control over our own life. And then he said, hey, I have made this beautiful, wonderful plan and I've made you this garden of Eden to live in. Why don't you guys just be in charge of it? Why don't you guys just control it? That's what David is reflecting on in this psalm. David's reflecting on this moment when God says, I'm going to create the world. I'm going to make you, by the way, and then I'm going to give you this world that I created and say that you are in charge. It's really astounding if you think about it. Then the author of Hebrews really gets to the heart of the issue. So he transitions from that psalm and he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, 
He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This is the crux of the issue because he transitions here from speaking abstractly about all of humanity. This is what they were about. This is how they live. This is, you know, it's amazing that God would care about us so much. And then he transitions into talking directly about Jesus. And he says that God has put everything in subjection to him. And it's kind of interesting there. The language is actually, you know, putting something under someone else's control, putting it in subjection to him. It's sort of like an inheritance kind of model. So it's not like, you know, God is like, you know, in control. And then it just sort of directly hands over control. It's not even like, you know, God's just sort of picking a person out of a lineup, but it's more like Jesus's due inheritance is to be in control of everything. And so God actually places that under his control, under Jesus's leadership. Nothing is left outside of it. And yet at present, as the author says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't actually see everything under his control. We don't actually conceive of that in the present. Can't envision that. This is actually one of the most crucial, important themes of the New Testament. And I think it answers like half of the sort of defeater questions that people have about Christianity and the ones that really, really keep you up at night. It's crucial to be able to understand this very concept in order to really be able to grasp it. It is simply put the now and not yet of the kingdom is what a lot of theologians call it. The now and not yet of the kingdom. Simply that the kingdom of God exists simultaneously now to a degree and also not yet at the very same time. See, at the cross, when Jesus died, that very instant, something amazing happened, right? It was in that moment that the end of all eternity, the end of all time was solidified, that one day he would be recognized as the king of the universe that he made and he loves. And in that moment, when he dies on the cross, that very end was set into motion, right? And in fact, that very end, that good and glorious end, when he is actually in control, when the right king is rightfully on his throne, then in that day, as Evie's favorite storybook Bible would say, in that day, all the bad things would come untrue. That's the sort of not yet of the kingdom that we're looking at. And yet it happens in that very moment when Jesus actually dies on the cross. In that very moment, the kingdom is actually ushered in, though we don't see it fully. I actually love how John says it. He says it this way in uh, John chapter 16, verse 20 through 22. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will be able to take your joy from you. Jesus says here that our sorrow and our ugliness or our, our dismay, our despair at all of the brokenness and ugliness of this world will one day turn into joy. 
That right now, and this is the metaphor that he uses, right now the world is actually pregnant. Like with Jesus' coming, the world became pregnant with the kingdom of God. And we are currently existing in this odd sort of in-between time where Jesus has not yet come fully into his kingdom, but yet his kingdom is already coming. And while we experience this pain, this ugliness, this brokenness, this chaos... On the other side is joy so unimaginable that it turns our sorrow from being sorrowful into joy. It actually converts what we had experienced as sorrow and turns it into joy. Charles Spurgeon actually tells this story uh, when he was teaching this text. He said that he visited a friend in a town called Newcastle and uh, this friend had a house with a great view and so he takes him up to the upstairs and they're looking out over this house with a great view and they're uh, expecting to see this beautiful city and the man actually has to apologize because all they can see is like this hazy fog, all this kind of smoke, you know, picture like wildfires a week ago or something like that. That's what they're looking out over. And you're supposed to be able to see the cathedral you know, the spires and stuff. You're supposed to be able to see the whole city, everything. It's supposed to be this really, really beautiful sight. And the guy says, I'm sorry, I realized uh, that during the week, you can't actually see it. I have this great view. It's sold, I sold you on it because of all the furnaces, because, you know, people are heating their homes. There's all this industry. This was, you know, back a while ago. And so all the smoke was covering up the house. And he said, the only time that you really get a glimpse of it, the only time you really get this beautiful view is actually on a Sunday morning when everybody's at home, when nobody's working, when they've shut down all the factories. This is when you get a glimpse of this beautiful view that I'm trying to tell you about. And I feel like this is what, our, uh, what our, our author here is kind of recognizing. He's saying that in reality, because of the now and not yet of the kingdom, everything has been placed in subjection to Jesus, but we don't actually see it. We can't actually perceive that. The kingdom of God is fully in existence, but we are just unable to see it. And we can sort of focus and it's really easy to get hung up on the haze, get hung up on the fog, everything that's sort of limiting our view, get hung up on the chaos and ugliness and brokenness of this world. But instead, I think that story even points me more deeply into the brief, small glimpses we get of the kingdom of God. And I think if you've been seeking after Jesus, if you've been following God, then you've probably caught some of these glimpses. They come out in in brief moments in community. They come out in reading scripture. They come out in worshiping God. They come out in friendships and in love and in hope and in beauty and in everything that is good in the world. And then when God reaches into our heart and stirs us and chains us and changes us and makes us look more like him, these are all just brief glimpses, sort of peeking behind the veil of shadow and of haze and of smoke to see the kingdom of God, to see that everything is indeed in subjection to him. Seeing these things are little breaks in the clouds of his good and loving plan for us. And the author of Hebrews tells us exactly how this is accomplished. He says it in verse nine. He says, but we see him for who we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
he explains right there. He says, so if you're following the logic, right, it's not going to be the angels for the future. In fact, God made uh, human beings in control of the earth. And Jesus is the sort of chief human being, the ultimate human being. And uh, he is actually in control of the whole earth, but we don't see it yet. So how does that happen? It happens through the death of Jesus. It's possible because Jesus tasted death for everyone. In fact, that's the way that he secured this kingdom. It's the way that he sealed that. It's the way that we know that he has the plan. And it's actually what gives him the authority to be able to set everything right again. It was through his death that his death was actually the means by which this kingdom might be ushered in. He took death on himself and beat it so that we do not have to die. I want you to think about that. Death is kind of the ultimate bad guy. Here's why all of this makes sort of logical sense is because death is the ultimate enemy to humanity. It is the one chief thing that we are primarily against. In fact, at the heart of all of this chaos, at the heart of all the uncertainty, at the heart of even like, you know, our our most basic desires that are sort of shielded as other things like, oh, I want to make sure that I stay healthy. Well, what is that about if it's not just like a means by which we might stave off death? Oh, I want to have more money. I want to have more power. I want to have more, you know, notoriety. All of these things are things that are helping us to sort of, you know, extend our life longer or maybe have more control over our lives so that we might hide even further from death. Even just the sense of like, I want to, for even the briefest moments, distract myself from the existential weight that death is causing. Point us back to the fact that death is the ultimate bad guy. It is the ultimate evil. It's at the heart of all of the chaos. It reminds us how temporary we are, It reminds us how fleeting life is. And while we may see brief glimpses of the kingdom of God, we also experience brief glimpses of death through painful situations, through chaos, through the way in which our world is moving and operating. But the beautiful thing for this And the beautiful truth for all of us who are experiencing this like gap between Jesus actually being in control in a way that we can see it and the world as it is, the beautiful thing is that Jesus does not need to fear death. That the very things that are causing us chaos, that are causing us turmoil, that are causing us challenges are something that Jesus does not need to fear. He's already bigger and stronger than death. It doesn't matter to him. He sees us And he sees the death that is keeping us held down and buried. He sees the fear of death that we have, that we carry, that weighs us down. He sees the effects of death that are constantly weakening us. He sees the death that is very much living inside of us. He sees that it is crushing us. And so, as the author says, by the grace of God, he tasted death for all of us. He stepped in. By the grace of God, he stepped into a death he did not deserve. He stepped into a death that was not his. Remember, death does not bother him. It does not scare him. It is not something he needs to be afraid of. But instead, he took on that punishment for you and for I, for all of us. Jesus steps in and tastes death for everyone so that his kingdom might be ushered in. 
And in the very same way that there's sort of this now and not yet of the kingdom through the death and burial resurrection of Jesus Christ, the same way that that exists, that Jesus ushered it in in that very moment, in the same way when he tastes death for you and for I, that kingdom begins to live inside of you. When you become a follower of Jesus, that now and not yet is not an abstraction of just being like, oh, wow, one day the world will be better. Now, all of a sudden, that is something that happens inside of you, where now you are instantly forgiven of all of your sins. You are now set free from the pain and, uh, and, and sorrow of death. You are now released from all of that. And you're set free to new life in Jesus. And the beautiful thing is that while that is a brief glimpse, while it is a taste, while it is just a small portion, and yet it radically changes everything about us, we know, we know that it is only a glimpse. That one day we know a little bit now, but one day we will know fully the good gift of eternal life that Jesus has given to us. What you see in front of you in your life might look like chaos, might look like the world is spinning madly out of control. It might look like there is no one behind the wheel. It might even look like death. But by the grace of God, we can trust that the kingdom of God is both now here and is also coming. Jesus is coming. And though we may not be able to see it now, though we may not be able to see it clearly, can trust that he is coming to make it all right again. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you tasted death. God, I thank you that you tasted death for me so that I might have your eternal life. God, thank you for that good and perfect gift. God, we pray that you would bless this in our taking of communion, God, that you might draw us closer to you, that you might uh, draw us closer to your son. God, that we might be able to better understand that death that you tasted for us, God, and enjoy the forgiveness, enjoy the grace, enjoy the goodness and love that you give us in exchange for the death that we deserved. God, we love you and we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.